The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. The Apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. The Lord replied, If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, Come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink, Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, We are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. The lessons this week, I think, are particularly difficult. And because of that, I would urge you to take this little thing home, this insert that has all of the lessons on it, as well as uh, the collect, both in traditional form and in uh, contemporary form, and meditate on these scriptures, because I think they speak to us in a way about life that we live day in and day out. You know, we don't live our faith on mountaintops. And we mostly don't live our faith in the valley of the shadow of death, but we live it in pretty boring, mundane, everyday circumstances. And that has to do with how we can live faithfully. And we need to learn to live faithfully in all of those places, on the mountaintop, in the valley of the shadow of death, and also in that vast expanse of time that makes up the boredom and the everydayness of our lives. Every once in a while, I, like you, get in a frump. And when I do, I find myself asking stupid questions, questions I know there really are no answers to. I find myself asking the why questions. Why does a colleague have to struggle with cancer and have that cancer come back again and again? Why does a couple who were looking forward with such a great excitement to the birth of their child and then within two years the child becoming so sick and suffering so much and then dying, why? Why did that have to happen? And I think of the many people I know in this congregation and beyond who are suffering with their own struggles. And if you look at the prayer list, you know, you can go through and you can find all sorts of why questions that come to mind. And then you can add to that, of course, the violence and the in injustice that we see all around us. You see how quickly you get into this deep frump. And you can think about here we are once again, again, the world is unable to do anything about a genocide. This time in Darfur, we're incapable of acting. Why? And then I think of this endless war that we have brought to a people, many of them dying innocently and suffering so innocently. And I, too, wonder why. And then that young 13-year-old in Boston that was shot. Why? Innocent child. And then I find that when I really think about these questions and I try to answer them, I know that I'm dealing again with that imponderable 
the question of evil, as the theologians put it. And the, the difficulty with that question is that there really is no answer to it. Philosophers, theologians have tried to understand it. They have spent centuries thinking about it, writing about it, but yet I've not found an answer that's satisfactory. I think, ultimately, formal theology does not really bring us to an answer to all of those why questions and all of that question of evil. But rather we have to come to our own practical theology. And when I say practical theology, that's that theology that we live in our lives. It's not what we say we believe, but it's what someone sees when they look at us and they see us living our life. Our practical theology is that theology that makes it possible for us to get up in the morning and face the day and think that there really can be goodness in this world. Our practical theology is where we deal with the questions of the true meaning of life. What do we really believe about the meaning of life? What do we really believe about our relationship with God? It's the theology that we live. This morning, I want to talk with you a little bit about my practical theology. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to talk with you about it in terms of words. Uh, perhaps those of you who see me can tell whether or not I actually live this practical theology. But I would also ask that you think about your own. Ask yourself, what is it? What is your theology? How do you practice that in everyday life? Well, for me, it starts where... Habakkuk or Habakkuk, and it can be said either way, and I've been taught both, so I go back and forth, so don't be troubled by that. I start where Habakkuk starts, by complaining to God. And we hear that right away in this uh, opening to, uh, his, uh, to this uh, particular piece of scripture. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Habakkuk pours out his heart to God. He sets it all out there in its rawness, in all the reality that he is experiencing in his life. He is telling God exactly what it is that he's feeling, that he sees around him, that, he dis that he's disgusted by, that he can no longer stand. And he's putting it out there for God to see. And he says it as plainly as he's able to say it. I think that that is the beginning of dealing with these questions and with that aspect of life that sometimes seems so overwhelming. It's acknowledging what we really believe to God. And saying it in a way that we would say it if we were saying it to our dearest friend, our closest friend, our, our most trusted confidant. And you, you and I both know you don't have to clean up the language in order to say it to that person. And you don't have to to say it to God either. You speak from the heart. And in doing so, you begin, I believe, at least for me, I begin to open up the possibility of seeing something beyond all of this messiness and all of this stuff that I can no longer look at. I think it's an honesty that springs not from doubt, but from faith. And sometimes when we think about speaking to God that way of opening our heart and really saying what we what we really feel, that we believe perhaps that's an expression of doubt or a lack of faith. But in fact, it is a faithful thing to do because 
it means that we believe that God might actually care. That God does care about this world we live in, about you and about me. So it is coming from the heart, expressing in a way our faith and trusting that we can say things to God that we might say to our most trusted confidant. I think it's also helpful for us to see that this also brings us into the presence of God in a way that we often don't uh, enter into God's atmosphere, as the theologian and Episcopal priest Michael Battle calls it. He says that the call of the Christian life is to enter into God, to enter into God's atmosphere. And I think one way that we do that is by this calling out, this Uh, This imploring God with emptying our heart and our soul, it's our lamentation. And if you get a chance, read some of the lamentations in the Psalms, where the psalmist is just pouring out his heart to God. That is a form of prayer. And I like to think of it, and it may, I don't know if it will work for you or not, but it does for me. I tend to think of prayer as standing on the edge of of a stream, uh, a good-sized stream, And when I pray, I step into that stream. I I enter in as though I'm going into deep water and I'm being washed by the Spirit of God, being cleansed like we're cleansed in baptism, being, being washed in a way that we cannot be washed with water and to have a sense of peace and a sense of calm that only God can give when we enter into the Spirit of God. I believe that is what happens when we're able to draw close to God with our deepest feelings and thoughts from our soul. And we cry out and sometimes ask the question why, but sometimes when we do it, we realize we don't need to ask why. Because we are present with the Spirit, we're present with God in a way that soothes our soul. But Habakkuk also knows that there are barren places And we've all been in them. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk is saying, even though there is no objective evidence that anything is going to ever be any better or that there will ever be a harvest or there will ever be any rain. I know, I know that you are a faithful God and I will act on that. I will live faithfully because I know of your faithfulness. But the other part of my practical theology is is grounded in the passion of Christ. And I I really base that on reading uh, The Call to Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. When Bonhoeffer, for, for me at least, really made the point that everything in life is to be mediated through Christ. It's as though there's this great filter that stands between us and everything else in the world. And that filter is Christ. And in a way, I believe that uh, Christ mediates our deepest pain, our greatest anguish, that somehow it's mediated through Christ and his passion. I know that uh, some of you uh, remember that a couple of years ago I went on pilgrimage to Israel. And while we were there, there was a... 
uh, theolo- or rather there was a, a seminary professor who was with us, who was a New Testament professor actually, and he went with us. We went to the Mount of Olives, and as we walked down the Mount of Olives, I was walking with him and a few others that were close to him, and it was a very rich time because he had so many interesting things to add. And we finally came down to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we stopped there for a while in a shady spot. And he, he told us, he said, you know, uh, Gethsemane, the name means something. And it, where it comes from is the Hebrew word Gatshemanim. Gatshemanim means oil press. So in a sense, what we say when we say the Garden of Gethsemane, we're saying the Garden of the Oil Press. Now, if you think about that in terms of, of Christ's passion and the agony that he experienced in the garden, and you think about what an oil press is and what it's for, you can imagine the, the sense of pressure that Jesus must have been under as he meditated and prayed in that garden that night. And if you think about uh, an olive press, pressing the oil out that coming from that press is an oil that's going to be used in so many ways it's going to be used for anointing as we did at 8 o'clock at a baptism it'll be used for healing as an, as an ointment it will be used in cooking it'll be used in so many different ways bringing life and bringing promise of life and in a sense that garden of the oil press is a place that all of us seem to have to pass through from time to time. And we feel the pressure of that place. But we have not been the first there, for he has gone before us. And I believe that he mediates some of what we're feeling in that oil press for us. And then in some cases, we know we reach the point where we feel totally abandoned. We feel abandoned by God, and he did as well. On Good Friday, he hung from the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then his death and and, uh, Holy Saturday and those who were faithful and had been with him had really no hope that there would be a resurrection. I don't believe they expected that at all. They waited. They prepared his body. They were putting his body away to rest. And they waited. And they waited. Waiting, too, is a part of the life of the Christian, part of faithful living, waiting. And then came the resurrection and new life. I believe that that's a cycle that we live over and over and over again in our lives. I've seen it in my own life. I don't have time to give a good example, but I'll just say very quickly that For me, one example of it was a dream that I had that I was so certain was going to be accomplished that I really felt I needed to do. I worked at it. I did everything I could and I couldn't make it happen. And I had to let go of it and let it die. And then, much to my amazement, it was resurrected and it was given new life. And it became something much greater than I could have ever asked for or imagined. And I see that over and over again in my life, and I see it in the lives of others, where there is a death, and yet there is a resurrection and new life. In today's gospel, we hear Jesus speak about mustard seed faith, and you know that mustard seed being the smallest of all the seeds. And there are times when I truly believe that all I've got left in the way of faith is about as much as would be in a mustard seed. 
And the wonder is that Jesus says, that's all we need. That's all we need. We only need that much faith and it will see us through. It is that much faith that makes it possible for us to cry out to God in our darkest hour and to bear our souls and put it all out there. It is that much faith that makes it, makes it possible for us to endure the garden of the oil press. It's that much faith that allows us to get beyond the abandonment, beyond the death, beyond the waiting and the waiting, and come to the resurrection and find new life. Amen.